0: Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18. This is going to introduce a very practical topic, and uh, our first topic will be on humility. But this is uh, introducing a series of topics that will be strongly practical Uh, in the flow of Jesus' teaching. And I think that there are times in our Christian appetite where we want something practical, we want something that we can do and um, that we can follow for our own personal growth and how we live. And I think that's all well and good, but Matthew 18 is also a very, very sobering uh, challenge from Jesus because as these applications are laid out they really are what serve for our own hearts um, as a spiritual test uh, to see if you are truly on the path to the kingdom of God. Uh, you're never on a path in the, in the way of earning your way to heaven, but you're always on the path of persevering and marathoning your way to heaven. And the difference between trying to earn your way to heaven and marathoning has to do with who gets you there. You're not getting yourself to heaven, but... God converts us and changes our lives and makes us marathoners to heaven. And then our job is to look at what the Word of God, um, how the Word of God describes a person who is going to the kingdom of heaven, and then to ask yourself, am I that person being described? Am I a runner? Am I a marathoner? Am I a true Christian, or am I sort of self-deceived, duping myself into believing that I'm on my way to heaven when I really am not. And that's Jesus's concern here in Matthew 18. He's giving very practical instruction um, by way of really requirements to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's how I've scoped out chapter 18. What does what true faith require? What does it look like to truly be a Christian? To truly be a Christian, you have, number one, childlike humility, verses one to six. Number two, you're someone who will radically amputate your own sin. If your right hand causes you to stumble, you cut it off. You're willing to do business with your sin. You don't just ignore it. Um, True living faith or a true Christian is also somebody who underwent a sacrificial rescue. You once were lost and then you were found. You were going one direction and then God commanded an about face in your life, gave you a new heart and rescued you through sacrifice, ultimately his own sacrifice. Then, fourthly, we're going to learn about unconditional forgiveness. A true heart, converted heart, will forgive. You forgive because you know forgiveness. You've been introduced um, to what it looks like to be forgiven. Verse. Uh, verses 21 to 35 is all of that discussion. How many times do you forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. You're in an unconditionally forgiving posture towards people who sin against you because you know the massive amount of forgiveness that you have received. Well, let's look at this first requirement for entering the kingdom. Verses one to six. It's the requirement of humility. A changed heart is a humble heart. A changed heart is a heart that has been forgiven and humbled in that forgiveness, a soft heart. And I'm borrowing the title of our sermon, True Greatness, which is humility, from C.J. Mahaney's book um, on humility. It's true greatness. Um, And sort of subtitled under true greatness, true greatness is childlike humility, childlike humility it's having the faith of a child pride is the ultimate opposite of humility pride is the petri dish of sin for which all other sin grows pride is the dna strand in our own life for all other outgrowth of sin pride is what destroys us from the inside out Pride is what suffocates others as it goes from the inside out onto others. Pride is something of massive fallout in our own lives. And because you've experienced the fallout of pride, I won't belabor the point in the introduction about how bad pride really is. Just assuming this, I will say a few things. Pride is what seduced Satan to ultimately lead a rebellion in heaven for his revolt against God. Pride is what welled up in the heart of Eve when she was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Ultimately, Adam and Eve fell because of their own pride and condemned humanity to hell, but by the grace of God and salvation. The tribe of Korah, you remember at the Exodus, was literally swallowed by the earth, opening up and swallowing it up because of their complaining sin. They're the illustration Paul is hearkening back to in 1 Corinthians 10 when he said pride comes before the fall. We raise ourselves up and God puts us down. James 4, 6 through 7, quoting the Old Testament, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is what disallows someone from being in the favor of God. Pride is what disqualifies someone from being in spiritual leadership. Pride undealt with in your soul, watch this, will bar you from heaven. Pride that's left undealt with in the soul bars you from heaven. Society knows how damaging pride is, even if it won't admit how bad it really is, and doesn't know how to deal with it. In 2011, there was a quality of life index survey um, on international living, and 188 countries were surveyed, and out of that survey, in terms of quality of life, the United States ranked number one. Yet, in another like survey geared around happiness in the United States, they tied for sixth place. Um, This might not sound too bad. But you might be surprised who was above the United States in terms of happiness. Indonesia, India, Mexico, Turkey, Nicaragua, Nigeria. Indonesia, by the way, doubled in terms of its score for happiness compared to the U.S., proportionately twice as happy as the United States. What does that mean? Well, the United States is filled with The highest levels in many ways of comforts and amenities, and yet none of those things are the source of true happiness or even the source of unhappiness. It has to do with your attitude and values according to the world. Here, chapter 18, it draws our attention to something that is beyond this world, though. We lift above the survey in a passage like this one because we're talking about humility versus pride. Pride that bars you from entering into the kingdom of God. And we know that Jesus, at the end of chapter 17, has been talking about two kingdoms. The kingdom of earth, the kingdom down in this world, versus the kingdom of heaven. And how we need to strike the delicate balance to live in between. Jesus, in chapter 17, is calling Peter to think in terms of two kingdoms. There's a kingdom that's our world now, and then there's heaven that we see by faith and we know about In terms of our future at the end of chapter 17, Jesus was being confronted in terms of whether he was someone who believed he should pay the temple tax. This being a Romanized government over the religious centers that were um, connected to the the Sanhedrin, and that pressure was coming down. Jesus, are you going to pay the temple tax? Verse 26 is where Jesus said, the sons are free. He knew of his freedom. He knew that he had a greater kingdom that he was subservient to. And yet at the same time, not to create an offense, verse 27, he paid the temple tax, um, though miraculously so. There was a fish to be brought up that had enough of a payment for both Peter and himself. So he was free, but he was free to remove the offense. He was free from the oppression of governance and yet free to remove any offense. The priority of heaven, in other words, is clear. We're here to lead people from one kingdom to another. We're we're here to lead people to heaven's kingdom. Did the disciples get this point? Well, look at verse, verse, I'm going to read the passage. This is Jesus Rebuke of the disciples because they didn't get the point. Listen to what they said. It says, at that time, verse 1 of chapter 18, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That had to have been met by by Jesus with great consternation. Just like, what? What? Anyway, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse two, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones Who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What are the disciples doing? They're hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven. And instead of thinking about how to get people there or how to be humble enough to feel the self-assurance that you're going to heaven. They're jockeying for position to see who can be the greatest In the kingdom of heaven. Okay if heaven's a priority. How do we compete to be the best there. That's their attitude. They want to stake their claim. Before anyone else can. To say I want pole position in heaven. This is the right priority of heaven. With the wrong application. To be clear. They are in over their heads. They're not thinking clearly. It's the disciples. These are believers. They came to Jesus asking this question. This is the philosophy of our day. It's been the philosophy of my entire life to hear people say, how can you be the best in your world arena? Best life, best health, best athlete, best college, best job, best position, best job, best position in your job, best girlfriend, best best wife, best family, best mother, best kids, best father, best bank account, best best Best, be the best. It's emphasized at every turn. It's emphasized in the military. It's emphasized in universities. It's emphasized in trade schools, careers. It's emphasized around the dinner table. If you want to oppress a kid, suffocate a kid, make them feel the worst, just lay on them this standard that they have to be the best. It's very self-destructive to do that. It's pressure. Common Grace realizes this. They, in our world, don't want to follow leaders who are pressuring people through their narcissism to say, let's all achieve the best. There's a book that came out by... Jim Collins, in two thousand and one called "Good to Great, and it surprisingly um, evaluated eleven corporations that made this leap from good to great, great the ones that were very successful, and you would know them by name. but it all comes back to leadership in this study as to why certain companies went from good to great and it came down to one or two things: one, an incredible prof- professional will, people who were hard workers. And they were willing themselves to do that. But secondly, they were self-effacing and they had the quality of modesty. These were the descriptors of leaders like that. They continually were said to be quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understanding. They didn't believe their own newspaper clippings. They were, um, they were called level five executive leaders. Level one are highly capable individuals, people who make contributions in the company. Level two, contributing team members, people who work well with other team members in group settings. Number three, the competent manager who organizes people and resources toward objectives. All of those are um, powerfully important to a company. Number four, the effective leader who catalyzes commitment to a clear and compelling vision, stimulating high performance. So you're you're catalyzing or you're calling people to do things. And level five, this executive in this hierarchy of leadership is someone who builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend. Something that's a seeming contradiction, that's the blend of personal humility and professional will. Humility. Even the world understands that humility is this chief jewel of leadership. It's leaders who channel their ego away from themselves who are decentralized. And they see the larger goal of building the company is more important than their ambition. Their ambition is driving towards the goal that is not themselves. The key is humility. It's not taking credit for anything. This is where people trip up. The Bible's definition of humility supersedes this. It, it goes to a deeper level with eternal stakes and eternal consequences. We are called to be humble. Oh, to be like Jesus, right? In all arenas. Oh, to be like Christ around the dinner table. Oh, to be like Christ when you're with your kids. Oh, to be like Jesus when you talk to your spouse. Oh, to be like Christ as a single man or woman who is finding contentment in the Lord. Oh, to be like Christ as you talk to someone that is a friend or someone who's not a friend, an enemy. Oh, to be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus means that you are humbly yielded to the Holy Spirit. That we have this softness of heart that is sensed by others. It all has to begin with your view of God, though. Isaiah 6, 66 2, the very last chapter of that long prophecy of Isaiah in summary fashion says this. All things, all these things, my hand is made. God speaking. And so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Second Corinthians sixteen nine, for the eyes of the Lord um, run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. James four six, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. John Calvin said this, it is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. You could maybe back this up to the vision of Peter, James, and John at Mount Transfiguration, and now they're down to earth practicing what they need to practice to advance the kingdom of God in mission, especially after Christ leaves. They need to be humble. They've seen the face of God. Now it's time to be humble. The spirit of our age that speaks to self-achievement, it appears noble. It's the opposite of being a deadbeat. It's saying, I've taken life by the horns. I am a winner. But this can easily turn sinful in our hearts because it is contaminated with the contaminant called pride. That's in every heart, every heart. This is what Satan went after with Adam and Eve in the garden. He incited that pride. He, he brought it to life in the heart of Adam and Eve. They were without sin, and yet because they were um, given the will to sin, The allowance by God to sin, this was incited by Satan. And this is the exact same scheme Satan used with Jesus later in the wilderness temptations that Jesus did not fall to. Do this. Be this. You deserve it. That's the stuff that we have to kill. And we have to see that this left unkilled in the heart keeps you from heaven. Pride keeps you. From heaven, unless you have repented of it, it's not that you can't have a relapse, but you have a heart that wants to kill it. Someone left in their own pride has no more interest into the kingdom of God than someone who is, you know, a inveterate liar, embezzler, thief. Um, Think of any of the grossest sins that that come to mind. All of those sins are really subservient to this great sin of pride, of lifting yourself up, of bowing your neck and saying, I am king and God of my own life and existence. This is what the disciples were playing with. They're playing with the fire of pride. Now, they're converted. They're on their way to heaven, but they're relapsing, and they're being a bad and horrible example to all who would be watching their failed leadership. We learn of Jesus by passing and failing. Well, they were failing at this point, and we can learn from their failure, and they needed to learn from their failure. Who is the greatest? Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. This is the disciples' bold assertion, and this is the beginning of how we're going to define what true greatness is. Verses 1 to to 4, true greatness is defined first by what it is not. It is not this bold assertion. It's piggybacking right on the exchange of what Jesus had just taught. Remove stumbling blocks. Don't be an offense. You're free to defer not free to climb the spiritual ladder by stepping on people to rise to the top. Jesus must have been just shaking his head. The disciples response to his teaching was who is the may That's uh, from the Greek der- derivative where we get the word mega. Who is the one who can perpetually be ongoingly mega in the kingdom? That's what they're asking. Their mouths and words were indicting their hearts. Their extreme exposure was on display of what they were seeking. So what Jesus does at this point is he offers the ultimate object lesson of what they should be as opposed to what they were acting like. By calling a little child to himself in a house setting and he put this child in the midst of them. Verse 2. He called to him a child. Now, the word child here probably conjures in the mind like a four or five-year-old. This is probably more like an infant, a two-year-old and under. And he put him in the midst of them. If you uh, just turn quickly over in your Bibles to Mark 9, you can see a more um, filled out and detailed explanation of this account verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, that fishing town that's at the top end of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Peter's um, house would have been, his residence. They perhaps were at Peter's house. Not sure. This could have been Peter's kid. Not sure. And when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What were you talking about as we walked here? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest now, did you catch the nuance there? This is not them asking Jesus who's the greatest. This means that they were chattering in the back seat of the car the entire way to Capernaum about who would be the greatest in heaven. Oh, all this heaven talk that we've been talking about, who's the best? I mean, what a bunch of first graders, right? Are the are the twelve as they're doing this. They're doing this. I mean, all these great things have happened. And they're making it about themselves, which should, in one sense, strangely comfort us because we're no different, and Jesus loved them anyway. What is true greatness? What is it supposed to be? I mean, they had fallen silent because verse 34 of Mark 12, they were busted. They were arguing. Luke's account, Luke 9, 46, said they had a big argument about it. And verse 35 of Mark nine thirty five and he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's very illustrative of our text. What's going on here? The pride trip, by the way, was not going to be solved in this soul section for Matthew chapter 20 and the other gospel accounts for this gospels account for this. There's the scene of James and John's mother who throws herself at the feet of Jesus, making a demand like any good soccer mom that James and John once in heaven should be either at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. Look, put my boys in, put them at play and make them number one because they deserve it. Matthew twenty twenty says, when the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is Salome, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. This isn't the point of kingdom. Sin is pervasive. When we're caught in this sin of pride and it comes out of our mouths, we're busted and we're humbled. Jesus wants the 12 to be humbled. He's saying, don't look in the mirror at yourself. Look into the mirror of this face of a child and see yourself in light of this child. What is he trying to convey? Well, when you think of a child, what do you think of? What characterizes a baby, especially one that's one years old or one and a half they're completely dependent on a guardian, on a parent. They cannot take care of themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't dress themselves. They can't keep themselves out of trouble. They can't put themselves in a warm space. Not knowingly, they're completely helpless and dependent on others. We had a couple kids at our house, just a mom was visiting um, my wife and I were there and the kids were running around one was still crawling almost able to get up on step and the other was running around and what you think of in the back of your mind is you we were dealing with a, a an issue and and what you're thinking about though is you know did the kid go near the stairs did the kid have an object that he could put in his mouth and choke himself I mean you're just kind of on at all points. Points about the safety of this child. A child is utterly impressionable, utterly expressive, and utterly dependent in terms of its guardian. You know, I was recently on a plane, just traveling back um, here, and I was sitting there just like you do on the plane, and you're sitting there in your seat, and you're enjoying um, what is one of the best reality shows that you can find, which is just the people entering into their seat area right? As they come on, you know, are they happy? Are they sad? Can they lift the luggage or not? Will the luggage fall out and just squarely hit somebody and create a lawsuit, you know, in that moment? Um, How can I serve? You know, how can I acclimate with the person? So you're doing all of that, right? You're just minding your own business. So you're doing that. And this little kid walks up and it was like in front of, Parents that were presumed to be behind, but it was just like this kid was just independent, but you know, yay high. And it looked, you know, how some babies, some kids look like adults, right? This one had the total grumpy old man face. and was just walking like this, you know, onto the plane, you know, like completely old in his mind, as if he had say over where he was going to sit. And he looked like he didn't really want to be there, you know, and he wanted to be off the plane. So everybody's sort of laughing because the kid was hilarious. But, um, It's just funny because the kid really, um, though he was a legend in his own mind, was um, completely dependent upon where his parent would put him and he would be. Kids need boundaries. They need prevention. They need direction or they will literally die. And this is the picture of the state of heart that Jesus wants us to be in. We're not self-sufficient. We are completely Christ-dependent. That's how it is. And the Lord uses hard circumstances to humble us and to bring us to our knees and to the end of ourselves. But humility is the path of, of uh, the pathway to heaven because it means that your heart has been changed. A self-sufficient pride person, pride-driven person is not yet born again. That's what Jesus is teaching. He said, verse 3, truly I say to you, unless... You turn, epistrepho, lest you about face and become like a child. This is what it means to be born again. Become like a child. Become like this baby. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. If pride is undealt with in your heart up to the point of when you die, your pride will keep you from going to heaven. Your undealt with pride will bar you from heaven. It means that you're unregenerate. True believers repent of this foundational sin. They stop jockeying for first place. They repent of saying, I'm in the driver's seat of my own life. They see self-focused ambition as sin. It's not someone who is... Someone who is left in that, they haven't yielded themselves to their master yet. Dependence is synonymous with a changed heart. Independence is synonymous with a unchanged heart or a heart that has as yet has not been changed. Uh, a key question to ask yourself is, is God my father? Am I in a childlike posture to my heavenly father? Do I know God as my father? Do I know Jesus as my brother, my older brother? Is he my master that I am yielded to? That's the question of life. There's a lot of questions we ask ourselves. Am I hungry? Am I healthy? Am I rested? But ask yourself a far greater question. Am I a child of God? That's what matters. And how do I get there? Well, have I repented or turned away from my pride? If I turn my back on my pride and said, Lord, soften me so that I can come to you as a little baby in full dependence upon you, your heart change does not precede death. Pride makes it too late for heaven. What does true repentance look like? like, Well, again, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were arguing, who's the greatest? Well, let me tell you who the greatest is. It's this baby. You humble yourself in utter dependence before God, and that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's true greatness. That's how it's defined. Taking the mindset of a child is the step one towards the path of heaven. Luke eighteen nine. Um, through 14 is the parable of the two that went to the temple to worship that are in utter contrast of each other, one proud and the other humble, one going to hell and one going to heaven. Listen to this parable. Luke eighteen nine. he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Do you see the language? That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up Into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus: "God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get." Just stop there a second. How how is this person building the assurance of his own salvation, trusting in himself? looking down on others with contempt, and then comparing himself with other people. It's the worst thing you can do. You Compare your marriage with someone else, you'll be bumped. You compare your family with someone else, you'll be bumped. You compare your status, you compare your spiritual status with someone else, you'll be bumped. It's It's a horrible thing to do to try to prop yourself up in superficiality and say, I'm better than that person because of X, Y, or Z, or I'm worse than that person because of X, Y, and Z. The only way to move forward in comparison, by way of comparison, is to compare yourself with God and be humbled and then receive grace. That's the path. That's the path. That's how you get out from the performance trap or comparison trap. The other person that went to the, to the temple was the tax collector. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. I'm sorry. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see that? If you prop yourself up, God will put you down. If you humble yourself, He will lift you up. So that was true greatness defined. Now look, let's look at true greatness described. What does it look like? What does this childlike humility look like when it's put on display? First of all, what does it do? What true greatness does, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, this is where Jesus is turning his, his attention from what the disciples were doing wrong to now what they should do right Don't be ensnared by relapsing in pride, trying to prop yourself up. Now, turn your attention outward to others and try to build them up by receiving them in. He's trying to basically leave his mark on the disciples for how to build the church and what the church should look like. This is church life 101. It's receiving people as you interact with people within the body of Christ. You're supposed to receive Christ with the faith of a child, but then you're supposed to receive others with this same humility, which in turn is like receiving Christ in the church. Children are needy and dependent beings. They're extremely important people. We know that, but they become easy to overlook if you're not intentional. Children are self-absorbed often. They are overly ambitious. They're even bothersome or distractions. They limit you. You say, oh, I want children. And then you add one, two, or three, and your life is forever different. You have to learn how to love that new life. Children aren't going to vote you into office. They're not going to pay your salary. They need you. You don't need them. You need to give to them and serve them so they survive. Have you ever noticed that the happiest people on the planet are people who love children? And oftentimes as people get older and older and their life is more limited by age and opportunity, the one thing that they do hold on to is their love for children. And it is a major blessing to them. This is all applied to the church. To receive one such child here means to believe, I mean, to receive baby Christians into your life. Baby Christians, new converts, people who have humbled themselves. People who didn't follow the example of the the disciples who were saying, how can I be the greatest or the best people who saw Jesus and they were humbled in heart and said, I want him. And so then the call is for the church to receive these people, these new little temples of the Holy Spirit, receiving them in Jesus name. Do you see that receiving one such child in my name? When you talk about the name of Jesus, you're talking about all of his attributes, all of who he is for all of his glory. This is receiving someone as if the Lord Jesus himself is walking in your midst. Someone's walking up to you and you could view them as a nuisance, as someone who is a problem in your life. Someone who's a distraction, someone who's going to limit you in time and resources and effort. And instead, you see that person as an opportunity to enjoin in fellowship with and you receive them as if you're receiving the Lord Jesus himself. For his glory, not your own. This is not about who you are. This is about who Jesus is. It's in Jesus' name that we receive people. It's the opposite of aspiring to greatness. It's the opposite of stepping on other people to climb the professional ladder. It's receiving people who, by and large, can't give you anything in return for what you're giving them. This is God's family. Philippians 2 describes this. Philippians 2, 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, this is what the Holy Spirit does in our life. Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Hey, I can just die and go to heaven, Paul's saying. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Be unified in mission. What is the mission? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. No pride. No pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You esteem others higher. You build them up. You say in your heart and mind, they're better than me because God has made them his own. They are children of God. we're supposed to look at all people like that, but in particular, new believers It's an opportunity to receive people, to take the last seat at the table, to be the opposite of what the disciples were doing by arguing over who could be the greatest. Well, what does true greatness not do? What it does is it receives people as if the children of God. What it does not do is cause people to stumble. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones... Who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea, causing little ones to sin. What does that mean? What kind of sin are we talking about? Why why did Jesus bring this up? This is a very abrupt, severe warning. It's one of the severest in all of the New Testament. If you cause a new believer to stumble, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, tempt them to do something in a gray area that would be debatable? Well, it can mean that. Does it mean that you participate in something that for you isn't a sin, but would be a sin for them and they see you doing it and they do it, they violate their conscience and that's the sin? Well, I guess that could be under the umbrella of this, but I want to marry this moment in verse six with the context of what Jesus is rebuking. It's the pride of the leaders, the arrogance of the disciples that he's saying, if you're arrogant like that, and you're focused on you, and you ignore the new believers that are being brought into the family of God, and it's all about you and not about them, you're dissing them and hurting them spiritually. It's junior high school. It's the cliques that you're not welcoming into. It's that simple. It's being shunned, new converts being thought of and spoken to as second-class citizens rather than welcoming them in. Think about it, the difference between I'm serving at nursery and, you know, it's the nightmare that never ends versus, man, praise God, I, be, I get to be in the presence of children. That, it's a dramatically two different attitude mindset um, that's on display in that moment. You either go to church and say, praise God, I get to be with the family of God. And welcome everybody in. Or I'm put off because this is holding me back from where I think I need to be. When you are left to your own pride, it plummets your soul into hell. But I want to just warn you that even in this life, if you're a Christian relapsing into pridefulness, or you're trapped in pride at present for whatever reason, that's a hellish existence on earth. You're drowning in your own self-absorption. And by the way, you're isolating yourself from everyone else because nobody likes a person who's filled up with themselves because it hurts other people. It's not just off-putting. It's draining to be around someone who's filled with themselves. And it creates loneliness in the heart of the person filled with pride. And it creates this angst with everyone else around you. So it's self-perpetuating loneliness. But worse than that... Your pride left unrepented of will send you directly to hell. And the idea is a millstone's around your neck and you're just dragged right down into being drowned at the bottom of the sea. The Romans in Jesus' time, this is a quote, gruesomely executed people by drowning them with a millstone. A millstone was hung around the neck. Josephus said that it was the punishment that was without a grave or a burial. So in the culture of the Middle East, it was degrading. It was the greatest punishment. The method of execution was as follows. A millstone would be tied around a criminal's neck with a rope and you'd be thrown into an ocean, lake or river. The millstone was a large circular rock that was used to grind wheat and grain of flour. The stone was turned around a shaft by a man, but most likely an animal like an ox. Mills were turned by animals, of course, much larger than human-powered models. Those who learn to swim can easily understand the effect, according to this quote, of having a large stone attached around the neck. The head would be pulled straight down. You just struggle and struggle hysterically, drowning, hopelessly. Drowning at the bottom of the sea. Church leaders who are filled with pride, who are filled with themselves, are causing little ones to look at that and say, that's not Jesus. There's a contradiction here. I mean, I know people who've been hurt by the pride of church leaders. And it's, its I mean, not just... Moments of lapses in judgment, like the disciples were on display here, but I mean hard-hearted, unrepentant leaders that leave people reeling, wondering what's true, what's right, what's wrong. It's according to Titus 1, those who are upsetting whole families, they're to be rebuked. Those who are insubordinate, verse 10, empty talkers, deceivers. Um, they must be silenced. Verse eleven, since they're upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. First Timothy three six. Recent converts, puffed up with conceit and pride, they fall in the condemnation of the devil. First Timothy five twenty two. Don't lay hands too quickly. Second Timothy two twenty two. Are those um, verse twenty three have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. These quarrelling leaders who are pridefully trying to figure things out that they ought not wrestle with. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, that they may escape the snare of the devil. Titus 3.10, those who stir up division after warning them once then twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. These are severe Warnings in scripture for people who raise themselves up in pride and cause people to stumble. They are under judgment. First Peter five is all talking about Peter who had learned his lesson from Jesus at this stage in his life and was saying shepherd the flock of God. He was talking in terms of being a fellow pastor saying don't do it for shameful gain. Don't do it but do it eagerly not domineering those over your charge being an example to the flock. Then he says, you who are younger, verse five, be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't puff yourself up in pride. Don't try to override the leadership. Be humble, especially you young men. And as you're worked up in struggling with anxiety, recognize that that is a form of pride and you can just give that to the Lord and you need to learn to do that. Be sober-minded, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil wants to eat you up. He wants to gobble your life up and make it, make it shrapnel in shreds. And he does that when he traps you in your own pride. 3 John 1, last example. Diotrephes listen to how he's described by John. This is John, who's the aged apostle, it says Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. People who are anti-authority, people who are raised up in their own pride, people who want to live by selfish ambition, are ensnared by pride. What did Jesus do? He modeled true greatness. He is the picture of true greatness. He is the picture of humility. Where is it found? Well, instead of a millstone hung around someone's neck, for our sakes, he became the stumbling block to keep us from being sent to hell. He wasn't drowned in the depth of the sea. Instead, he took an execution, a form of execution that wasn't instantaneous like that, He writhed on a cross, he strapped it to his back, writhed on a cross for hours, absorbing our sin onto himself to save us from our own sin of pride. He was ultimately humbled so that we would be delivered from our pride so that we in turn could be humbled and give him glory for saving us. Philippians 2, once again, we're to esteem others higher than ourselves. Why? Why? Because we can have the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't entitled in heaven. He wasn't in a mindset of entitlement, I should say, in heaven. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God was highly exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.